1: Angel of Mercy is based in part on the book The Death Shift, the true story of nurse Janine Jones and the Texas baby murders by Peter Elkind.
0: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: Hospitals, like many places of work, become little worlds unto themselves over time. Communities develop, hierarchies are established, bureaucracy becomes unavoidable. Bear County Hospital in San Antonio, Texas, was no exception. By 1978, when 28 year old nurse Janine Jones began working in the pediatric ICU, Bear had become a world unto itself.
0: The hospital was still reeling from a highly public federal trial in which the Texas state government had been accused of denying medical resources to San Antonio's poor Hispanic and Latino population. In response, San Antonio turned Bear County into a partial charity hospital, promising that the medical facility could cater to everyone in need.
1: As the state and hospital had feared, however, the sudden influx of poorer, harried populations had driven away wealthier patients and large amounts of funding, the hospital found itself under intense scrutiny to deliver on its promises while struggling with understaffing and underfunding.
0: In such a charged atmosphere, Bear County found itself in an even tighter spot in 1981 when someone began killing children en masse in the pediatric ICU.
1: Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals.
0: Hi, I'm Claire.
1: And I'm Vanessa.
0: And you're listening to Female Criminals. Today, we are continuing to explore the twisted mind of child killer Janine Jones. Last week, we covered Janine's life before her crime spree and her first few kills. This week, we'll continue examining her murders and see how she was finally
1: caught. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of female criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out.
0: And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and on Twitter at ParCastNetwork. In hospitals, emergencies are called codes, and three to four codes a month is not unusual for a place like Bear County. However, from August to December 1981, the pediatric ICU experienced a marathon of tragedies, particularly during Janine Jones' shift from 3 to 11 p.m.
1: As a warning, we're about to discuss child murder in graphic and extended detail. Listener discretion is advised.
0: In August 1981, Two-month-old Terry Garcia entered Bear County Hospital following bouts of diarrhea and vomiting and was transferred into Janine's care in the pediatric ICU after developing a fever.
1: On Terry's first night, her heartbeat slowed before stopping altogether. Doctors revived her, but her heart arrested again the following evening, requiring 90 minutes of CPR and electric shock to save her.
0: Her heart gave out a third time the next evening. Terry Garcia died on August 11, 1981. Janine cleaned her body and held her for hours before taking her to the morgue. Over the next two months, four other babies suffered similar fates. The hospital went into a panic. Something was terribly wrong in their pediatric ICU. They scoured the ward for clues as to why so many children were suddenly dying. Could it be contaminated equipment, or an infection spreading through the hall? Or were the 11 nurses on call between 3 and 11 p.m. just that unlucky?
1: One nurse in particular seemed to be enduring the worst of it. After each death, whether the patient was Janine's or not, Janine would publicly mourn in the ward. Janine cried when the babies coded and hugged their corpses to her bosom after they died. She consoled the children's parents at length when they burst into tears. She also seemed to be doing everything she could to keep the children alive.
0: No one who cared that much could possibly be hurting anyone. Many in the ward believed that Janine was everything a pediatric nurse should be, devoted to her patients and desperate to save them. However, this behavior may have been disguising something far darker.
1: Fabricated or induced illness by carers, F-I-I-C, formerly known as Munchausen by proxy, is defined by the National Crime Prevention Center as, quote, the deliberate production or fabrication of physical or psychological symptoms in a child by a parent or carer, end quote. Carers harm or imagine illnesses or injuries in their children in order to receive sympathy and attention for themselves, That pattern was presenting itself in Janine's behavior in a more noticeable way.
0: When two infants coded and died on the same dreary October evening in 1981, several of the registered nurses became so depressed that they quit.
1: Thirty-one-year-old Janine asked a sympathetic young doctor, "Why do babies always die when I'm around?"
0: Many in the hospital were starting to share the same concern. One or two deaths during the same shift is a statistic, but 10 is a pattern. Gossip began to swirl around Janine. Why were so many infants dying on her shift? And why was she so distraught even when they weren't her patients? But no one wanted to leap to the conclusion that the ward's most devoted nurse was connected to these deaths.
1: While some were growing suspicious, others believed in Janine more than ever, The ICU's head nurse, Pat Belko, despised the gossip she heard circulating about Janine Jones. Any suggestion of Janine's involvement in the patient's deaths was met with threats of disciplinary action. Belko demanded that accusers provide real proof of their suspicions or keep their thoughts to themselves.
0: Belko made her support of Janine crystal clear in her official nurse reviews from August to December of 1981. She stated that Janine was an invaluable nurse, providing much-needed support to parents and patients in their
1: hour of need. For Belco, Janine was innocent until proven guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt.
0: It wouldn't take long, however, for evidence to pile too high to ignore. Six-month-old Jose Flores entered Bear County Hospital on October 6, 1981, for the most common infant maladies, diarrhea, vomiting, dehydration, and fever. But on his third night, Jose suddenly experienced violent seizures and his heart arrested with Janine Jones by his side. Jose Flores died on October 10th in a pool of his own blood.
1: When Jose's parents were informed of his death, Janine was there to console them. She swaddled the dead infant, gave him to his older brother to hold, and began to escort the family to the morgue.
0: However, once they had left the pediatric ICU, Janine yanked the baby out of his brother's arms and rushed away from the Flores family, losing them in the maze-like hallways of the hospital, so she could take the infant's body to the morgue herself.
1: As we mentioned in our previous episode, Janine developed these rituals around sympathy first when her younger brother Travis died, and then when her father died— She would weep loudly at their funerals to receive sympathy there and then return to school immediately to sop up the sympathy of her classmates and teachers. As an adult, she continued this pattern with her infant patients and with Jose Flores in particular, Much of the older research into serial killers and psychopaths suggested that they were incapable of empathy. But newer research published by the Frontiers in Human Neuroscience Journal suggests that they empathize purposefully, never spontaneously.
0: Where a normal person might rush to the aid of a parent who has just lost their child, a psychopath can choose whether to feel empathy. She put on a show in front of her co-workers of giving Jose to the Flores family and letting them carry him. But once they were alone, Janine took the baby back so she could present it to the morgue workers in the bowels of the hospital, so she could be the one to receive sympathy for the dead infant in her arms. The bizarre event left the Flores family, as well as some in the hospital administration, deeply confused.
1: And it caught the attention of someone who, to this point, had been one of Janine Jones's greatest admirers. Dr. Jim Robotham, the medical director at Bear County, had come to admire Janine's stalwart resolve with the patients and her unwillingness to put up with political nonsense.
0: However, something bothered him about Jose Flores's death. The bleeding. Jose hadn't just bled from his IV line. He had blood from his mouth, his rectum, his eyes. Too much inexplicable blood, and there were only two possible causes. The first cause is something called disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, a rare side effect of infection that can prevent blood from clotting. The second cause was more troubling. An overdose of heparin, a drug used by nurses to keep blood from clotting in IV lines.
1: Heparin is extremely common in hospitals. Doctors and nurses use it every single day in microscopic doses. Dr. Robotham found himself wondering if someone was administering overdoses to the patients.
0: He became even more concerned when a nurse came forward in mid-October of 1981 with evidence that children were dying at an alarming rate under Janine's care. Had it been up to Robotham, a criminal investigation into Janine's participation in the infant's deaths would have begun in October of 1981. However, if they accused Janine Jones outright, they risked a massive lawsuit, bad publicity for the hospital, and low
1: nurse morale. We must also remember that, to this point, there was no concrete evidence that she had done anything. No hospital drugs were missing. No one had seen her giving anything inappropriate to a patient. And every child had died in a slightly different way and with symptoms that could be rationalized in a diagnostic environment. Janine often cared for the ward's sickest children, and many of those who had died weren't her patients at all.
0: Dr. Robotham, however took Maldonado's findings to Dr. Bob Franks, the acting chairman of pediatrics. Dr. Franks granted permission to Robotham to investigate discreetly. However, he made it very clear that far more evidence would be necessary before action could be taken.
1: Robotham began privately investigating Janine Jones, as well as telling residents and doctors to keep a keen eye out for when and where heparin was being used in the pediatric ICU.
0: Three-month-old Albert Garza was admitted for diarrhea and dehydration and suddenly experienced a massive bleed on October 17, 1981.
1: The two residents who were caring for Albert had heard the rumors swirling about Janine. With Robotham's warning of heparin overdoses ringing in their ears, they decided to keep watch over Albert's bed throughout the 3 to 11 p.m. shift on October seventeenth to ensure no one could administer heparin. However, they were both summoned out of the ward halfway through their vigil.
0: Janine called them back to tell them that Albert's blood wasn't clotting. One of the residents immediately tested for heparin and found the drug in the baby's system, only to turn around and find Janine preparing to administer additional
1: heparin. A safe dose of heparin is less than one unit per cubic centimeter of fluid— Janine was preparing to administer heparin with a concentration of 333 units. When the resident confronted her, Janine told him he was being stupid and that his math was wrong. But when she saw him calculating it for her, she left the baby's side.
0: Albert's bleeding never recurred, and he was discharged from the hospital with a clean bill of health shortly after. You would think a medication mistake like that, intentional or not would raise a lot of red flags for the higher-ups at Bear County Hospital.
1: Dr. Robotham brought the incident to the attention of those who could fire Janine Jones, but they told him that it was just a simple miscalculation.
0: On October 18, 1981, Robotham changed the medicine policy in the pediatric ICU. Any nurse administering heparin would need a second nurse present to confirm the amount— and then both nurses would have to sign the bottle.
1: However, because he couldn't tell the nurses why he had done these things, the nurses saw this micromanaging as an accusation against all of them. They closed ranks and started pointing a finger at Robotham. Those who saw the heparin incident as a mistake started wondering if Robotham was obsessed with Janine.
0: Those who suspected Janine, however, began reporting any strange incident they witnessed. In late October, when a drowning boy was resuscitated and brought into the pediatric ICU, for example, Janine told residents that they should let him die because, quote, he doesn't have any brain left, end quote. In another incident, Janine told a resident to push a massive dose of sugar solution on a baby with low blood sugar. But when the resident checked, the infant's sugar levels were normal.
1: Janine began testing other boundaries, too. She clocked out early without explanation and ignored direct orders from head nurse Belko. Her hypochondria also picked up again. She was admitted to the hospital four times, though no one could ever find anything medically wrong with her.
0: If attention and sympathy were her drugs, then being treated for hypochondria also satisfied that urge. So, too, did disobeying orders. That attention is still attention.
1: Despite her odd behavior and obvious mistakes, when Dr. Robotham went back to the head of pediatrics, Dr. Franks, in November of 1981, Dr. Franks told him these behaviors didn't concretely add up to murder. He would only admit that the number of children dying was cause for concern.
0: On November 10, 1981, Franks kicked the problem further up the hospital hierarchy to B.H. Corum, the administrator who oversaw the entire
1: district. He delegated the pediatric ICU issue to his underling, John Guest, and the head of nursing, Virginia Mousseau. But in a memo, he mentioned that while the number of infant deaths was concerning, the real issue might be that Dr. Robotham was, quote, getting out of hand with suspicions and emotions, end quote. Coram told Guest to monitor Robotham's behavior.
0: If Robotham had had any concern for himself, he might have quieted down about his relentless investigation. Instead, he seemed to go all in. He wrote the head of pediatrics a five-page memo detailing the deaths of nine children during Janine's shift, children who had been admitted with one illness only to die from another.
1: This only seemed to make the administration more concerned about his fixation with Janine, they believed he had settled on a culprit, and when he could produce no hard proof of her guilt, had become obsessed with her.
0: But it wasn't just Robotham who was certain Janine was guilty. Fellow pediatric ICU nurse Pat Alberti had been regularly telling the hospital psychiatrist since September 1981 that Janine Jones was killing kids.
1: However, Since there always seemed to be a way to rationalize what was happening, and in all other ways Janine was a model nurse, Janine continued caring for children in the ICU.
0: Eleven-month-old Joshua Sawyer had been rescued from a house fire and was being treated for smoke inhalation when he came under Janine's care on December 8, 1981. Despite the confidence of doctors and great progress, Another nurse overheard Janine telling Joshua's parents that long-term brain damage was the best they could hope for if Joshua survived. She suggested that death would be the kinder outcome. Joshua died during Janine's next shift on December 12, 1981.
1: As had become Robotham's procedure, doctors took samples of Joshua's blood to check for high doses of medications, but in the aftermath of his death... The test results slipped into patient-report purgatory, where they would sit for over a year.
0: Following Joshua Sawyer's death on December 12th, Dr. Robotham redoubled his efforts. He told trusted nurses and physicians to page him for every single code and to keep an eye on Janine Jones. Janine knew he was watching her, too. At one point, she asked Robotham point-blank if he thought she was hurting children. Dr. Robotham told her he didn't know. Head of pediatrics, Dr. Franks, believed that Robotham had become obsessed with Janine Jones. Dr. Franks put Robotham on temporary leave, but Robotham knew that was just a precursor to being fired.
1: Robotham had followed the hospital's policy of telling no one about Janine until there was hard proof she had done something wrong. But as Robotham's last act as medical director at Medical Center Hospital, he pulled his trusted friend, Dr. Kenneth Copeland, aside and told him he earnestly believed that Janine Jones was a killer.
0: Remember, we said that an average month would see three to four patient emergencies, or codes. After Robotham was forced out in December, Medical Center Hospital's pediatric ICU experienced ten codes and seven infant deaths in four short weeks. Four of the patients were Janine's.
1: We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now let's continue the story.
0: Suspicions surrounding Janine Jones' involvement in infant patient deaths had reached an all-time high in December 1981. Her most earnest accuser, Dr. Jim Robotham, had been fired But he had told his trusted friend, Dr. Kenneth Copeland, that he believed Janine was killing children.
1: One-month-old Rolando Santos was admitted to Janine's ICU on December 27, 1981, with a treatable bout of infant pneumonia. Most patients with the same illness were sent home within a week.
0: However, on January 3, 1982, Rolando's pneumonia became something else entirely. During the 3 to 11 p.m. shift, little Rolando began to bleed, not just from his IV, but from older puncture wounds across his little body. Several of the doctors believed it was the onset of DIC, the rare infection that prevents blood from clotting. However, the bleeding symptom was gone by the next morning. The symptom wouldn't reappear in Rolando until the evening of January 6, 1982.
1: It took Dr. Copeland three days to confirm his suspicion that Janine was involved. From January 3rd to 6th, Janine had been off duty. On January 6th, when Janine's next shift began, Rolando bled everywhere. One resident described him like a water balloon covered in leaks.
0: Dr. Copeland sent Rolando's blood to the lab for testing. Results confirmed that Rolando had too much heparin in his system.
1: Dr. Copeland did the only thing he could think to do. He administered a drug that reverses the effects of heparin, called protamine sulfate. If he was wrong about the heparin, the protamine could do permanent damage to Rolando's body. He decided it was worth the risk and administered an entire bottle of protamine himself.
0: When the first bottle did nothing, Copeland pushed a second bottle. But it made no difference. Rolando had been bleeding for almost an hour. The plasma the nurses were administering to maintain his blood levels could only do so much if they couldn't stop the bleeding.
1: Copeland pushed a third bottle of protamine, and to the elation of the room, Rolando finally and suddenly stopped bleeding. By January 11th, Rolando was healthy enough to no longer need his respirator.
0: Rolando Santos went home with a clean bill of health on January 16, 1982. A later lab test would reveal far too late that Rolando had survived a heparin concentration 127 times the maximum safe limit before Copeland's quick thinking had saved his life. But without the results of the blood test, Dr. Copeland's claims that Janine was responsible were seen as conjecture. Several of the nurses came up with medical explanations about the heparin found in Rolando's blood, all of which proved reasonable enough to an administration that didn't want baby killing associated with their pediatric ICU.
1: Purposeful ignorance was exacting a heavy toll in the ward. On January 14, 1982, another baby had been admitted in dire circumstances. This baby, however, proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back.
0: Four month old Patrick Zavala underwent a routine surgery to repair a birth defect on January 14, 1982, under the care of one of the most renowned cardiac surgeons in the United States, Dr. J. Kent Trinkle. The surgery had been a resounding success. After surgery, Patrick had entered the pediatric ICU and recovered so quickly that by January 17th, he was healthy enough to be removed from his respirator. When the day nurse ended her shift at 3 p.m. on January 17th, she noted in her patient log that little Patrick had been awake and aware through her entire eight-hour shift. Patrick's mother would confirm that report. By 4 p.m., however, Janine Jones would note that the baby was lagging. At 6.30 p.m., Janine told a surgery intern that Patrick was unresponsive.
1: The surgery intern took the baby for a brain scan at Janine's suggestion, and Janine accompanied him. Patrick's heart stopped in the CAT scan room. The intern put out a call for a pediatrician, but by the time the intern turned back to check on the patient, he found Janine with syringe in hand. She already had the drug they needed to revive Patrick. She had brought it with her.
0: A few minutes later, as doctors raced Patrick back into the ICU, he began to have seizures and his heart stopped. Dr. Trinkle, the surgeon who had performed on Patrick, was not used to losing his patients. But unlike Dr. Copeland and Dr. Robotham, Trinkle had an ace up his sleeve. He was a superstar surgeon that the hospital could use to attract wealthy benefactors and patients. To the hospital, Trinkle was a somebody— a somebody no one wanted to piss off.
1: On January 20th, 1982, Trinkle demanded an explanation. He had watched Patrick Zavala's autopsy with his own eyes. His surgery had gone flawlessly, so it must have been someone's clumsy mistake or sinister behavior in the ICU that had caused the child's death. More than that, he revealed that the surgeons had sensed something was wrong in the pediatric ICU for months.
0: On January 20, 1982, following Trinkle's demands for answers, an official memo circulated the hospital about how shoddy the pediatric ICU had been of late, demanding a response. Even worse, after reviewing the memo, the hospital psychiatrist felt compelled to come forward about the pediatric nurse, Pat Alberti, who had been claiming for months in session that Janine Jones had been murdering patients
1: the dirty little rumor the hospital had tried to ignore had finally gone public.
0: On January 25th, 1982, six hospital administrators met to discuss the situation. Robotham was also there. They noted how many of her patients had entered the hospital with one illness and died from something totally unexplainable.
1: Unfortunately, because there was no completely verifiable proof, the hospital lawyer told the panel that any action against Janine would not only sink the hospital into a lawsuit it couldn't afford, but would also reveal to the public what was going on in their pediatric ICU. They wouldn't survive it.
0: The panel felt their hands were tied. They would need to have an outsider come into the hospital and conduct an objective investigation. If the private investigation happened to unearth proof that Janine was responsible, so be it. But if not, they would fix the problems the investigator found.
1: To Robotham's relief, the panel agreed to hire Robotham's esteemed mentor from the Toronto Children's Hospital to investigate.
0: The Toronto Children's Hospital had the most advanced and esteemed pediatrics unit in the world in 1982. And Dr. Alan Kahn was their star pediatrician. He was also notoriously skeptical and famous for his dedication to evidence and research. If anyone could figure out what was really happening in Janine's pediatric ICU, it was him.
1: Kahn's investigation began on February 15, 1982. His arrival to the ward was not met well. Staff became petrified that he and his team were scouring the ward for proof of mistakes and misconduct.
0: Kahn began his investigation by interviewing all 32 employees in the pediatric ICU, including Janine Jones, but his interviews only seemed to confirm his suspicion that the ward's dysfunction ran deeper than
1: a single nurse. There was too much hostility between the doctors and nurses, between the nurses and the hospital administration, between the registered nurses and the vocational nurses.
0: Khan seemed to come to the conclusion that trying to blame Janine Jones for everything that was happening in the ward was simply a symptom of a ward that wouldn't function right whether she was there or not.
1: Khan concluded his two-month investigation by figuratively blowing up the infrastructure of the pediatric ICU. Khan pulled his protege, Dr. Robotham, aside and told Robotham he was being permanently transferred to recover from what Khan felt was most likely burnout. The pediatric ICU would be closed for reshuffling and renovations, and all patients would be transferred to other areas of the hospital in the meantime.
0: His solution to the Janine Jones problem was to circumvent the problem entirely. Kahn advocated for removing vocational nurses from the pediatric ICU and requiring that all future hires be registered nurses. This allowed the hospital to clean shop without suggesting guilt or negligence.
1: Janine wouldn't have to wait long for a new job. Kathy Holland, a doctor who had spoken on Janine's behalf during Kahn's investigation, offered to hire Janine on as a pediatric nurse in her brand-new private practice in Kerrville, Texas.
0: Holland had been disgusted by Medical Center Hospital's treatment of Janine Jones. Jones, she thought, was innocent, an easy target for a hospital that wanted to deny their own failings in the pediatric ICU.
1: As she opened her own private practice in August of 1982, Holland was thrilled to be taking along such an accomplished pediatric nurse. Janine even lived with Holland for a brief time while her husband was building their home in Kerrville. Holland and Janine also collaborated on their first drug order from the nearby hospital. An unexpected drug made the list. Anectine, a powerful muscle relaxant usually only ever used in a surgery setting.
0: A patient under anectine would be unable to breathe on their own and would be completely awake as they suffocated. There was no reason for a private practice in pediatrics to keep a supply of enecting. Whether Holland knew about that first bottle of enecting in the medication order is unknown.
1: Holland's private practice opened officially on August 23, 1982. Janine arrived to work wearing a badge that read Janine Jones Pediatric Clinician, a badge that usually is only worn by registered nurses.
0: On August 24th, 1982, Petty and Reed McClellan brought their 14-month-old daughter Chelsea to Dr. Holland's office for the sniffles. Janine took one look at Chelsea and told Petty that her baby had a blue tint, something Petty vehemently denied
1: later. Janine took Chelsea out of her mother's arms and into an examination room, but within five minutes, Petty knew something was wrong she could hear Janine's voice rise with panic through the door. Janine told Dr. Holland that Chelsea wasn't breathing, and when Holland opened the door to check, she noted that the baby seemed to be having a seizure.
0: Following procedure, Dr. Holland ordered an ambulance to take Chelsea to the Sid Peterson Hospital, only a mile down the road. However, when doctors there examined Chelsea, they could find no explanation for her seizure or why she would be struggling to breathe. In fact, nurses would note the baby was completely alert and a healthy pink color.
1: The McClellans thought of the doctor-nurse duo as a gift from God. It had been a blessing that the doctor and nurse had been there when Chelsea had fallen ill. They began telling their friends that Dr. Holland was a wonderkind and that they should all take their children to see her.
0: On August 27, 1982, one-month-old Brandy Benitez entered Holland's practice for symptoms of bloody diarrhea. However, within moments of beginning their examination, the baby suddenly stopped breathing and suffered a seizure. The ambulance raced to the hospital, but by the time they arrived, Brandy had already made a miraculous full recovery. The hospital could not determine the cause of Brandy's seizure.
1: For Dr. Holland, These incidents seemed to reaffirm her belief that she had made the right choice in moving to Kerrville to open her practice, and an even better choice picking her nurse. When
0: four-month-old Chris Parker arrived on August 30, 1982, he was suffering from mild breathing problems. Janine insisted, however, that he was much sicker and they rushed him to Sid Peterson Hospital. As Holland examined him, The Sid Peterson nurses and doctors whispered among themselves. There seemed to be nothing wrong with him.
1: Perhaps that's because Janine had already found a more interesting plaything. Jimmy Pearson, a physically and mentally disabled seven-year-old boy trapped in an infant body, was suffering from complications of his condition. Sid Peterson Hospital had arranged to fly Jimmy via medical helicopter to San Antonio for additional treatment. Dr. Holland arranged for Chris Parker to ride accompanied by Janine Jones.
0: However, just 15 minutes into the flight, the Army medic noted that Janine began to exhibit troubling behavior. She told the medic that Jimmy was having a seizure, even though his heart monitor showed no signs of distress. She also pulled out a stethoscope and told the medic that the boy had no heartbeat, even though the medic knew from experience that it was impossible to hear through the din of the chopper blades.
1: Then Janine produced a filled syringe from her pocket and injected Jimmy. The medic told his pilot to make an emergency landing. Jimmy had stopped breathing. On the ground, the medic managed to revive the boy and got on their way again. Despite so many similar emergencies from their days at Medical Center Hospital, it never seemed to occur to Kathy Holland that all of this happened before, or that it involved her nurse, Janine Jones. As we mentioned earlier, it also feels like Janine, like many serial murderers, had begun to escalate her crimes and test the boundaries of what she could get away with. She was even starting to develop the same cockiness as other serial killers.
0: On September 7th, 1982, Janine approached Dr. Holland to inform her that a bottle of anectine, that super potent muscle relaxant, was missing from their cabinet. Holland simply told Janine to reorder and to note the missing bottle in their records.
1: Just 10 days later, Janine greeted Petty McClellan in Dr. Holland's waiting room. Chelsea was there for a routine checkup only 24 days after the emergency that had sent her to the hospital. Chelsea seemed to be in spectacular health. The 15-month-old girl was running up and down the hall, laughing and playing.
0: Janine's notes, however, stated that Petty had said Chelsea had suffered a seizure per day in between visits and would periodically stop breathing.
1: While Janine wrote... Holland told Petty that Janine was going to administer two routine immunizations before their checkup. Petty scooped her daughter up and sat with the little girl in her lap as Janine pushed the first immunization. But Petty quickly shouted that something was wrong. Chelsea's mouth had fallen open and her eyes were wide. She would later tell the court it looked like her baby was trying to call out, Mama.
0: Janine told her the baby was just scared and pushed the second syringe. Chelsea began to seize in her mother's arms and Holland came running, alerted by Petty's panicked screaming. Holland forced a breathing tube down little Chelsea's throat and called for an ambulance.
1: Instead of taking her to the local hospital, Holland told the ambulance to drive to Medical Center Hospital in San Antonio. She and the McClellans would follow behind by car, Janine would assist in the ambulance. Chelsea stopped breathing again eight minutes into the ride.
0: They pulled into a small county hospital, but the strain had been too much for Chelsea's tiny body. After 20 minutes of chest compressions, Dr. Holland pronounced Chelsea's time of death, 1.25 p.m. on September 17th, 1982.
1: When Dr. Holland told Petty McClellan, she couldn't believe it. Chelsea had been running and playing only an hour ago. How could she be dead? Dr.
0: Holland found herself wondering the same thing. She ordered an autopsy and accompanied Chelsea's body
1: to San Antonio,
0: while Janine returned to Holland's clinic.
1: Where she welcomed their next patient into the examination room. Five-month-old Jacob Evans simply wouldn't stop crying.
0: Dr. Holland told Janine to take Jacob to Sid Peterson, and that she would be there soon to examine him. Janine told Jacob's parents she would examine him first. Janine took the wailing babe from his mother's arms. Just minutes later, the parents heard their baby's cry cut off mid-scream. They rushed into the exam room to find him blue and seizing on the table.
1: The Evans rushed Jacob to the hospital with Janine in tow. The doctors were able to revive him but could find no reasons for his arrest.
0: After so many emergencies, Holland was relieved to close the office for Memorial Holiday Weekend on September 18, 1982, but Janine agreed to see one-month-old Anthony Wynn herself there later that afternoon. Holland had delivered Anthony. The Wynns trusted her. By association, they trusted her nurse, Janine Jones.
1: Janine examined Anthony and declared that the soft spot on Anthony's head felt swollen and that the baby was suffering from a staph infection. She told them they were taking Anthony to the hospital.
0: Janine called ahead to Sid Peterson Hospital and told them to expect a baby with low blood sugar, bloody diarrhea, and a fever. Holland was also summoned from her holiday. However, when the infant arrived, nurses noted he wasn't even warm. He was alert and playful. Holland could find nothing wrong with him, and Anthony left the hospital shortly afterward. Janine told Holland that the baby's parents had called from outside the clinic, and she refused to turn them down.
1: Whatever was going on, the doctors at Sid Peterson had caught on far faster than those at Medical Center Hospital. On September 22nd, the doctors convened to discuss the influx of infant emergencies a practicing physician who had worked in the area for 40 years, declared that in all of that time, he had never seen an infant arrest. Yet there had been four arrests and one death in Holland's first month in Kerrville.
0: On September 23, 1982, Chris Parker returned to Holland's practice for a checkup, but Janine passed him over for five-month-old Rolinda Ruff, who was visiting Holland's practice for diarrhea and an ear infection.
1: Holland told the roughs that Rolinda was dehydrated and that Janine was going to begin an IV of fluids. Janine took the baby into the exam room, and moments later, Rolinda's mother heard Janine telling her baby to breathe.
0: Holland called Sid Peterson and told them to expect an infant patient in cardiac arrest. Across the hospital, doctors who had convened only the day before to discuss Holland's many emergencies made their way to the hospital ER, to see who Holland was bringing in now.
1: By the time Rolinda arrived, however, she was breathing on her own again and struggling against her breathing tube.
0: And that's when Dr. Frank Bradley, an esthetician, took notice as Rolinda's arm flopped back down beside her when she tried to remove her breathing tube. He had seen that move before made by surgery patients who had the muscle relaxant anectine in their systems. Someone had dosed Rolinda with anectine.
1: While Dr. Bradley was making his discovery, Janine was far away in the hospital lobby where she found Chris Parker waiting to be examined. She placed him on a cardiac bed intended for a patient arriving by ambulance. When a passing nurse barked at her to remove him, Janine told her, quote, Well, I hope to hell this baby doesn't go into cardiac arrest, end quote.
0: Moments later, Janine called out for help. Chris Parker was in cardiac arrest. Holland rushed in and ordered drugs, which brought Chris Parker back. The nurses then brought Holland's attention to a nearby half-filled syringe lying beside the patient. No one knew where it had come from. Uncertain, Holland told them they should probably throw it out.
1: That afternoon, the doctors of Sid Peterson brought Dr. Holland in to speak with her. They were concerned about the number of emergencies coming from her clinic. They also told her they suspected that someone had given Rolinda the brutally strong drug anectine.
0: When Holland left, calls were made to the Texas Board of Medical Examiners to report Holland's possible participation in the emergencies at her practice, and to the Texas Board of Vocational Nurse Examiners to report Janine Jones. The nurse board contacted Texas Ranger Joe Davis.
1: After a single month of emergencies in Holland's private practice, Sid Peterson Hospital had done what Medical Center Hospital had failed to do in a year. There would now be a formal investigation into Janine Jones. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to female criminals.
0: In the first month of Dr. Holland's private practice, Janine Jones had been part of eight medical crises involving seven different patients, one of whom, Chelsea McClellan, had died. Nearby Sid Peterson Hospital doctors had noticed the pattern of death that seemed to follow Holland and Jones wherever they went, and reported their suspicions to the authorities.
1: Janine Jones seemed to sense that she was on borrowed time, On September 26, 1982, Janine approached Holland of her own accord and showed her that the two bottles of anectine were accounted for and full.
0: Holland thought it was convenient timing. The next day, while Janine was away, Holland checked the bottles of anectine herself. One had needle holes in the rubber seal, and when she confronted Janine about the bottle, Janine suggested they dispose of it. Holland panicked.
1: Holland asked two Sid Peterson doctors to visit while Janine was out. She showed them the two full bottles of anectine, the punctured bottle, and the invoices for the office's drugs. Janine had told Holland they needed a second bottle of anectine after the first had gone missing. In fact, a third bottle of anectine had been ordered without Holland's signature. The doctors sealed the bottles in an envelope and signed it. On September 28, 1982, Texas Ranger Joe Davis brought Janine Jones in for her first interview. Janine told Ranger Davis that she had not and would never harm a child. She offered to take a polygraph if Holland did.
0: But things seemed to finally be catching up with the 32-year-old nurse. When Janine returned to Dr. Holland's practice on September 28th, Holland gently told Janine she couldn't work for the practice anymore.
1: Janine was livid. She sent Holland a bleary suicide note, which proclaimed her innocence in all wrongdoing, but that also stated that she was going to end her life to, quote, take all the pressure off of you and the seven people whose life I have altered, end quote.
0: Holland didn't quite know what to make of it, and she still had a hard day ahead of her. Ranger Davis had arranged for her to take a polygraph.
1: The polygraph on September 29, 1982, revealed that Holland had answered four questions untruthfully. All of the questions related to the use of anectine in her practice. Holland told Ranger Davis that she had failed because she felt guilty. If Janine had killed Chelsea McClellan, she would never be able to forgive herself.
0: When Holland returned to her office with Ranger Davis, Holland found another letter from Janine in her bag. Janine echoed the words she had once told nurses at Medical Center Hospital. If she was going down for harming children, she would take
1: others down with her. Along with the letter, Ranger Davis noticed two vials of anectine rolling around in Holland's bag. Holland couldn't believe it. She told Davis she now believed someone was trying to frame her. Fortunately for Holland, the envelope with the punctured bottle of anectine inside, signed by the Sid Peterson doctors was still unopened.
0: But the event spooked Holland badly. On October 1st, 1982, Holland hired an attorney who told her to stop cooperating with the investigation until he could ensure her legal immunity from prosecution.
1: Janine also seemed spooked. By October 12th, Janine Jones had left Kerrville behind and moved to San Angelo.
0: The same day Janine Jones moved from the city, District Attorney Ron Sutton convened a grand jury to investigate her. However, the case against Janine Jones was dead on arrival, unless the prosecution could provide a murder weapon. Chelsea McClellan's cause of death had been listed as SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome.
1: On December 15, 1982, D.A. Sutton and Ranger Davis asked the pathologist who had conducted Chelsea's autopsy if a neck could have killed her. The pathologist agreed that anectine could be misdiagnosed as SIDS, the far more common killer. In an autopsy, she agreed to write an addendum to her report listing anectine as a possible cause of death.
0: Now they had to prove that anectine was in Chelsea's body. Unfortunately, there was no known test that could identify the drug in the human body. On February 24, 1983. Milsap brought Janine Jones before a grand jury to ask about troubling deaths in the Medical Center Hospital Pediatric ICU. Janine wove a long, compelling tale of medical malpractice. It seemed everyone was guilty except her.
1: She seemed to relish the attention the investigation was giving her. Even though she had moved out of Kerrville, she took advantage of every opportunity to tout her innocence to the press. She even organized her own press conference on March 4th. Her fearless dominance had finally found the perfect outlet. After her press
0: conference, those who had worked with her before came out of the woodwork to testify against her. Resident Cheryl Soprani, who had seen Janine giving inappropriate medications, jumped at the opportunity to testify when D.A. Millsap called in early March. Likewise, resident Marisol Montes came forward with a book she had found with Janine Jones's signature in the cover, called The Sisterhood, about a group of nurses who mercifully killed their ailing patients.
1: On March 16th, after reviewing the hospital's reports, Milsap broke down the deaths at Medical Center Hospital. During Janine's last 12 months in the pediatric ICU, the ICU death rate had increased by 178%. Forty-two children in total had died, 34 of which had died during Janine's shift, and half of which were her personal patients. Such a
0: compelling piece of evidence was still only circumstantial. D.A. Sutton and Millsap and Ranger Davis needed to connect the drug to Chelsea's
1: death. Fortunately, a few short days later, on March 28, 1983, the prosecution discovered that a test for a nectine had only just been developed in Stockholm, Sweden. It was the bullseye they needed. They put in a request to exhume the body of little Chelsea McClellan.
0: Chelsea's exhumation was finally approved and carried out on May 7, 1983. Gingerly, the coroner removed slices from her internal organs and thighs, where the injections would have been given. The samples were flown to Stockholm for the anectine test.
1: A negative test would squash their case. The prosecution waited on nervous, bated breath for news.
0: On May 18, 1983, The call finally came in from Stockholm. Chelsea had indeed been murdered with anectine. She had died wide awake and unable to breathe.
1: Now confident they could get their trial, D.A. Sutton called Dr. Holland's attorney and offered the doctor immunity for her testimony against Janine Jones.
0: One week later, on May 25, 1983, D.A. Sutton brought the anectine test results before the grand jury and obtained eight criminal indictments against Janine Jones, one count of murder for Chelsea McClellan, and seven counts for the other Kerrville children who had suffered medical emergencies while in her care.
1: The trial was a twisted four weeks of courtroom theater that began on January 16, 1984. People from across Texas scrambled for seats every morning and camped out in the hallway for seats after lunch, watching for signs of guilt or insanity from Janine. To the very end, Janine seemed convinced the entire trial was just a technicality, as she doodled in court. Oxford psychologist Kevin Dutton's research suggests that her calmness under pressure may be the nail in the coffin of her psychopathy diagnosis. The same traits that allowed Janine to hide in plain sight were the traits that helped to seal her fate in the courtroom.
0: On February 16, 1984, the case went to the jury, but it took them only four hours to reach a guilty verdict. The jury convicted Janine Jones for the murder of Chelsea McClellan and seven counts of intending to seriously harm children. They recommended the maximum sentence of 99 years in prison. In
1: 1985, another case would be brought against Janine for the attempted murder of Rolando Santos, the baby who had nearly died in a pool of his own blood from a heparin overdose, but who had been saved at the last minute by Dr. Copeland.
0: Janine was found guilty and given an additional 60 years to serve
1: concurrently. Janine Jones was finally behind bars. The serial sympathizer who wept over the infants she killed would waste away in a 6x10 cell for the rest of her life. Or would she?
0: As of 2017, after serving only 33 years of her 99-year sentence, 67-year-old Janine Jones... Is currently eligible for parole.
1: Janine Jones is nearly a third of the way through her 99-year prison sentence for killing a 15-month-old, but she could be out next March because of a mandatory release law that was in effect at the time of her conviction in 1985. Now she's been indicted for the overdose death of another infant at a San Antonio charity hospital where she worked in the early 1980s. That's right. Janine Jones may become the first legally released serial killer in United States history.
0: Texas law enforcement is trying to remedy the situation. The district attorney has indicted Jones with additional charges for the deaths of children while she was a nurse at Medical Center Hospital. On May 25, 2017, she was indicted for the murder of 11-month-old Joshua Sawyer. The blood test that had been overlooked later revealed that Joshua had overdosed on a sedative called Dilantin. We proceeded with this one charge at this time. When we, when we file that charge at the district attorney's office, it's anticipated we'll file multiple aggravated assault charges on
1: top of this one. And we are currently investigating up to seven incidents and uh,
0: On June 21st, 2017, Another indictment came through for the murder of two-year-old Rosemary Veda.
1: For now, angel of death Janine Jones remains in jail, awaiting her next trial for child murder. You can learn more about Janine Jones in Peter Elkine's book, The Death Shift, The True Story of Nurse Janine Jones and the Texas Baby Murders, available on Amazon.com.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play and Spotify or on our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Female Criminals comes out every Wednesday.
1: If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Trapeer and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.